You're listening to The Patriot Cause with Bud Cornwell, United States Marine Corps, retired standing guard on the Wall of Freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. Welcome back, Patriots. This is the Gunny. You're on the Patriot cause. Wow. An amazing <laughs> guest that I don't even know why he wants to be here, but he is. And his name is Major Monty Granger. He is an amazing patriot. He's a retired U.S. Major Army officer. And I'm not going to try to figure out who he is. I'm going to let him tell us who he is. But I will tell you this. He was a physician in Gitmo. Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, in case you don't know what Gitmo means. And his experience as a medical officer is probably going to be uh, one of the, the books of history on how to deal with these, what we call terrorist people that, in my mind, are lost. So without further ado, thank you so much, major monty for for joining us well but thank you so much for having me anytime i get a chance to rub elbows with the fine united states marine i'm in awesome hoorah 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 uh yeah my name is montgomery j granger and i did write a book called saving grace at guantanamo bay and the title says uh where i come from uh, the mission was an emotional train wreck. Uh, at once hating the people I was duty-bound to care for, uh, not as a physician, actually, but a medical officer. Uh, I helped coordinate uh, medical and preventive medical and environmental care for the detainees from February to June 2002. My unit, uh, the 455th uh, EPW, uh, liaison detachment uh, was tasked with being the joint detainee operations group. That's the intermediary between the guard force battalion inside the wire and the JTF command, where the Puzzle Palace people uh, make all the decisions. So my boss and my little 12-person detachment was the camp commandant. During my time at Gitmo, we did live together. Uh, in a condominium. If you're not familiar with Gitmo, it's any base USA. Uh, only in this place, uh, back in the early 1990s, they built a detention facility for Haitian and Cuban boat people. Uh, and General Leonard, a uh, one-star Marine general, was in charge of it back then. And so they made him in charge of Camp X-Ray. And just so you and your listeners understand, Camp X-Ray uh, was like open-air dog kennels. Mm. It was designed for isolation of troublemakers during the uh, the boat people uh, uh, crisis. Uh, th this was the place where they separated the troublemakers into six-by-eight-foot chain-link concrete slab cells. Yep, that's the pictures that we all seen, right? And unfortunately, you still, still see these pictures. And we only used it for three months. I know that's just a strange part, right? <laughs> that, that's what that's what they yeah. want to promote, right? And I wrote the book in 2010, and I wrote oh, the wow. book got fed up with all the mainstream media lies and innuendo about how poorly detainees were treated there. They're not treated poorly at all. In fact, yeah. all detainees treated with dignity and respect by all military caregivers. Uh, it's only the alphabet soup, secret squirrel, shadow warrior spooks, right? Uh, who were trained in, in enhanced interrogation techniques 
no one in the Department of Defense, uniformed or civilian, were ever trained in those techniques nor performed them. Uh, and there's lots of myths and lies about how they were treated. And I'm here to tell you that uh, every single detainee was treated with dignity and respect according to how they treated us. Uh, there were some who sucker punched the guards, who splashed the guards with bodily fluids, who were uncooperative, who went on hunger or thirst strikes, which we dealt with in a humane uh, a, a way as possible. And just so you know, a lot's been written the last couple of days about uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, whether you love him or hate him. Uh, he was not involved in any torture techniques at Gitmo. Uh, I've been reading a lot of articles yesterday and today yeah. that he witnessed force feeding. Well, what is force feeding? Force feeding is you put a tube down someone through their <laughs> nose and you feed them to keep them alive. And what the, the I remember that. Did. I remember that. But not one of these articles explained that tube feeding is a routine, life-saving medical procedure performed on premature infants, yeah. coma victims, yeah. and others a million times a day. So it's not. In fact, my, my uh, father-in-law, uh, dear end of life, was fed that way. God rest his soul. So this is not torture in any way, shape, or form. Yet the mainstream media and Islamist apologists want to try to pro project this onto Ron DeSantis. Uh, he was a JAG officer. Uh, and like many of us down there, we, we were supposed to be eyes and ears for G Geneva Convention, even though these unlawful combatant Islamists who wanted to kill us were there uh, under the spirit of Geneva, not under the law of war, because they were unlawful combatants. Yep. And also you saw in these articles the fact that, oh, they never had a trial, blah, blah, blah. Well, even lawful combatant prisoners of war uh, do not have to be charged or tried until, quote, the end of hostilities. Correct. And by all uh, intents and purposes, the global war on terror is not over. In fact, nope. President Biden uh, has kind of picked things up in Somalia, in Syria. In Afghanistan was abandoned, so guess what happened there? Uh, in, in Africa, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, IS, whatever you want to call them, are all alive and well. And yep. we are fighting them and killing them. And so the idea of abandoning Afghanistan and just want to remind everyone that the military in the United States of America is controlled by civilians at the Department of Defense. That's correct. So as much as some people wanted to, to blame uh, military planners for the debacle in Afghanistan, it was not military planners. Mm -hmm. What happened was the civilian walks at the Department of Defense got rid of the military and logistical infrastructure. All the third country nationals, all the portageons, all the way to feed and house and clothe and supply people were removed. And then they asked United States Marines to commingle with civilians. And I don't know about you, but I've been in Iraq, I've been in a war zone, and the number one most important uh, aspect of for a combatant commander is force protection. Yes. And that concept was abandoned. And if you saw the testimony recently by that yep. Marine Overwatch sniper. Absolutely. Which, which brought tears to my eyes. I wept. I did too. Wept, describing how he had to watch his comrades die. Yep. Because his supervisor would not give him the order to execute his mission. So when you're, you know, you're talking about terrorists, right? The thing about it is, unless you've been on the ground and seen what these people are like, it's difficult for the American people to understand how they actually operate. I think... In my experience, I was in Somalia in 1993. I got there 
seven days after the initial Marines landed. Hmm. Spent uh, four or five months in Mogadishu, and then we moved into a, a little place in the middle of Somalia called Baladogo. When I was in Mogadishu, which leads to what you're talking about, we went on convoys. We protected convoys going back and forth to the U.S. Embassy. And I'm going to tell you what I seen. And when we're talking about terrorists, there's a difference. The mindset's different than warriors, right? It's 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 just a different way of of people thinking that they need to fight, which is absolutely this very destructive, not only against the combatants that they're fighting with, but themselves. Also, because it, it morally, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Great example. We're on our way to the embassy to bring the general to do his speeches, you know, and, and his strategies and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And as you probably know, and been trained by the army, you don't stop in a convoy. You do everything you can not to be stopped. You got to get point A to point B. Yep. Well, we were going through the main part of Mogadishu town and we got stopped, got blocked. Mm. I was the the second Hummer at the end of the trail. I was a staff sergeant at the time. I was sitting in the passenger seat of the Hummer and I had Marines in the back with you know weapons covering six and all that kind of stuff. What I witness in, in, in my mind is the most dramatic, instant understanding of what evil really is. And here it is. Three vehicles ahead of me. What happened was they had these teenagers, these kids, probably about six or seven of them, that were coming towards the convoy. And, you know, we're used to this. We're used to people coming up to the trucks, you know, all that stuff. And if they try to climb over, you know, unfortunately, you, you just got to knock them down, you, you know, you know, with the butt of your weapon or something like that. But what I seen was atrocious. What happened was they brought these teenagers into connecting with this convoy to kind of relax us. And then what happened is they opened up on the convoy, not only shooting at us, they killed virtually every one of those teenagers. This is pure evil. Yes. And this, this is what people need to understand, that these Boca Raton, all these people, this is how they think. This is what's in their mind. So my question to you is this. You're dealing with these detainees that have the same type of mindset. Not all of them, I would say, but there's probably, in your experience, you can say, this is a very, very bad guy. Or this guy is just kind of following some kind of commands and stuff like that. So my question is this. How, how did you connect with them? How did you communicate with them? And what did you learn by communicating with that type of person? Sure. So part of my mission was to receive new detainees. When we got there, there were almost 200. Uh, by the time I left, we had close to 300. And every time we get a new shipment, maybe a dozen or two dozen at a time, I would go down to the uh, Leeward Airport with the crew and observe them coming off the planes, being prepared for transportation, transported, and then in-processed at, at Camp X-Ray. Uh, we had at least 23 different languages spoken. So these were soldiers of fortune. Uh, these were people who got really excited about killing Americans and found their way to Afghanistan. Uh, some of them would just soon slit your throat as look at you. 
one tough old guy, I guess he was in his forties, looked much older, uh, had a prosthetic leg. He wanted to carry it. We wouldn't let him carry it because obviously it could become a weapon. So he hopped yeah. around. Um, we had, uh, young men, uh, we had older guys, but most of them were hardened soldiers and one soldier can tell another soldier. Uh, there, there were very few among them who didn't belong. Uh, one that I uh, explain in the book and also uh, a short documentary film on YouTube called Heroes of Gitmo, which anybody can watch right now if you want to on YouTube. Heroes of Gitmo is a 10-minute uh, documentary film based on my book, and it highlights Wild Bill. Wild Bill was uh, mm -hmm. from Afghanistan. Uh, he was picked up on the streets of Kandahar. He was given an AK-47 in heroin. And it took us a while to figure out his bizarre behavior was because he was a cold turkey heroin addict and a schizophrenic off of his medication. Hmm. When we discovered this, it was also determined he's no longer a threat to the United States, nor of any intelligence value. So we worked to repatriate him. And actually, I drove the Humvee that took him to his Friedenberg. And we got a chance hiding from the press on, on windward side or leeward side, waiting for the, the Friedenberg to talk to him through an interpreter to get his story. And uh, a couple of weeks after we got him back uh, to Afghanistan, uh, we learned through uh, an NBC.com story showing him on the bed of a mental hospital in, in uh, Kandahar. And you know what? He was quoted as, as talking about how great he was treated at Gippo. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, this is just one example. Of course, there are many other examples of hardened Al-Qaeda uh, unlawful combatantisms who want to kill us. And as time went on and I went home and, and uh, more and more detainees ended up uh, getting there just under 800, uh, but I want you and everyone to understand tens of thousands of unlawful combatants were taken prisoner mm -hmm. off the battlefield. Only just under 800 ever made it to get them. So they were screened in the bat on the battlefield. And yes, guys like Wild Bill made it through. Uh, but most of them uh, were Al Qaeda operatives. So the four that have been released so far this year by the Biden administration uh, have been really served certifiable bad guys. Uh, the one that was just released was a trainer and an expert in uh, explosive devices. Uh, these guys are the worst of the worst. And I have no idea why on God's green earth, how we can be engaged in a war on terror and let the bad guys go. I know. And we know that at least 30%, and this was the last uh, statistics we got, uh, from the Obama administration, at least 30% are known recidivists. My question is, what about the other 70% that we don't know about? And how could you ever, ever let somebody out you know wants to kill you and, and send them back to that environment? And we know that the five uh, Taliban that were traded for yep. the American trader were leaders sergeant sergeant whatever his name was yep bergdahl i think bergdahl you're exactly right bergdahl so, you know it's a, a lot of people say it's insane and then they stop thinking or talking about it they're not insane it was on purpose it was deliberate they're islamist apologists they care more about uh these folks than they do the the almost three thousand americans that were murdered in one day on 9 11 2001 and it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and they call Gitmo a gulag. It is anything but. Remember, we just under 800 were sent there. Well, 745 plus have been released. None of them have been beheaded or executed or blown up or hacked to death. Or, or Right. Got the justice, the justice they, they deserve. Or drowned or burned alive. There is nope. no moral comparison between Gitmo and how our enemies treat their captives. None. Yep. And they were all given free Korans and prayer rugs and beads and halal meals, holy uh, Muslim holiday meals. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's 
So it was uh, a Hilton for them, right? Uh, world class healthcare vision. I know it's just you know, <laughs> but the thing about it is, is once they get released, and you know what I'm fixing to talk about, it doesn't take them but a couple days to a week, and they're right back in the same well, mentality. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. They're and, they're superstars. Yep. So, Monty, we're going to take a break. And when we get back from the break, got a couple more questions to talk about um, the, the the detainees, but specifically associated with um, how do you view these uh, detainees as it relates to human beings, right? I mean, because they're human beings, and I agree with that. They're they you know they're just off on their rockers or whatever. And I think it's important for the viewers to understand that Gitmo is, it's, it's not like they were sent to this maximum security prison. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's important to understand this. And, but what makes it more important when we get back is the fact that when we do release them and they go back again, within a week or so, they're right back in the same position they were. So you can't change the soul and the mind of a person just because they're in a, in a prison and getting old. So we'll be right back. Talk to you in a second. I'm just trying to be a father, raise a daughter and a son, be a lover to their mother, everything to everyone. Up and at them bright and early, I'm all business in my suit. Yeah, I'm dressed up for success From my head down to my boots I don't do it for the money There's bills that I can't pay I don't do it for the glory I just do it anyway Providing for our futures My responsibility Yeah, I'm real good on the pressure Being all that I can be I can't call in sick on Mondays when the weekend's been too strong. I just work straight through the holidays, sometimes all night long. You can bet that I stand ready when the wolf growls at the door. Hey, I'm solid. Hey, I'm steady. Hey, I'm true down to the core. And I will always do my duty, no matter what the price. I've counted up the cost I know the sacrifice Oh, and I don't want to die for you But if dying's asking me I'll bear that cross with honor Cause freedom don't come free I'm an American soldier An American Beside my brothers and my sisters I will proudly take a stand when Jeopardy, I will always do what's right I'm out here on the front lines Sleep in peace tonight American soldier I'm an American soldier
Welcome back, Patriots. This is the Gunny. Awesome Patriot. A matter of fact, a retired U.S. major in the Army that has experience that most of us don't even have a clue what experience in the military is. But he's a very special person. He is a, a wonderful Patriot America and a server to of God in, in this world. And he has dealt with the detainees at Gitmo, um, which I think is a very, very difficult job to deal with because inside of us, and I'm sure the major can reiterate is, you know, they, these people trying to kill us, they are hardened criminals. And yet we have to have, as much as possible, compassion and care and medical ability to uh, take care of these people. And this is what uh, Major Montgomery did when he was there in Gitmo. So without further ado, welcome back, Major. Glad to have you. Thanks, but It's certainly my pleasure. Uh, I love uh, everything about the United States Marine Corps. I had the pleasure of serving with Marines at Gitmo. And a quick funny story is that at Gitmo, transportation, especially in the early days in 2002, was hard to come by. Uh, and there were these famous 15-passenger vans, the Air Force guys, <laughs> Coast Guard guys, Army guys. Nobody would pick you up. Navy guys, drive right by, be completely empty van. And here I, I at the time, was an, an Army captain trying to get a ride before our vehicles got there. But I will tell you this. Any 15-passenger van at Gitmo driven by a United States Marine, whether it was full or empty, would stop and say, sir, do you need a ride? Absolutely. Never fails. Never fails. God bless the Marine Corps. We're, um, uh, we're a special breed. I was a Marine drill instructor for three years, so I had the opportunity to train other Marines to go out there and and – do do what we do. And here's the main thing, just real quick about Marine Corps. People say, well, our primary thing is, you know, learning weapons and tactics and all that. I get, I get that conceptual idea. No, no, it's not. It's being a good person. That's what we do in the training. We break them down from, I don't care if you're a Senator's son or you grew up in the back streets of Alabama, you're all going to be equal at some point during that training. And then eventually we're going to make you men. Not only are we going to make you men, we're going to make you accept the fact that your character and your honor, your commitment to the Marine Corps and to the United States is what makes who you are. Doesn't matter what your MOS is and where you go. That's what a Marine is. That's why we won the battle in Iwo Jima and all those other places, because that was what drove us, protecting the character, protecting the honor of a Marine. We didn't want to fail any other Marines during combat battles and any other service. That's why, you got, picked, that's why you got picked up, because we, hey, we look at everybody like a Marine, right? That is exactly right. All one team. Absolutely. It's amazing. When I was in Somalia, we had uh, all kind of people, all kind of countries. Uh, but I'm telling you right now, the, the other militaries don't even come close to all of us, you know, with our integrity and our kindness to each other, you know, whether it was Egyptians or Moroccans or Australians, or Italians, or French, or Canadians, you know, um, we were kind and generous to everybody there when I was in Somalia, which is a great example of how American forces together, this is when I really learned this, I used to think, well, the Marines are, you know, we're, we're, we're it, you know, we're like that cream of the cream. No, we're not. We're just a part of the, the wheel of the whole Department of Defense going out and supporting America. And, and it's just awesome to learn that. Absolutely. Tip of the spear. Yep. So, all right. So now you're in Gitmo and you're taking care of these, you know, 
what we'd call hardened criminal, terrorist, whatever it is. And of course, my first thought is you got them, put a bullet in their head in the mm. conversation. I, I hate to say that, but that's the truth. Well, legally, you know, we could because got them yeah. all dead battlefield because they're unlawful combatants back in 1942 uh six of eight german saboteurs who were caught dry foot on u.s soil mm -hmm. uh were executed yeah uh and they weren't uh executed for hurting anybody or blowing anything up uh they were denied habeas corpus they were tried by military commission and found to be guilty of breaking the geneva conventions they were spies they didn't mm. carry openly, weren't uniform. And because they broke the law of war, they were sentenced to death. Hadn't hurt a fly or damaged any property. So these guys, many of them who were caught after engaging uh, with American and allied forces, were captured on a battlefield as unlawful combatants and brought to detention. So Gitmo's not a prison unless you're convicted. It's not corrections. We're not in the business of changing your mind about anything. You're simply being held just like a lawful combatant prisoner of war would be held without trial, without charges until the end of hostilities or charges are brought uh, for war crimes you may or may not have committed. So the folks that were brought to Gitmo uh, and Donald Rumsfeld, uh, who, who was uh, in charge of defense at the time when I was there, told us, we know they're not entitled to the protections and privileges of Geneva Conventions, but we will treat them within the spirit of Geneva. And that's the only way we knew how to do it anyway. United yeah. States is in charge of enemy prisoner of war. There are no uh, enemy prisoner of war units in any other branch of the service. That's what I did and my colleagues did in the 800th MP Battalion. During the first Gulf War, I hooked up with them in 1999, uh, and many of the people I served with in that brigade had done detention operations uh, during uh, Operation Desert Storm. Uh, being a reserve unit, all these guys are sheriffs, uh, corrections officers, policemen. So not only uh, did they have the experience of the Gulf War, but these are experienced law enforcement officials, almost to a person. So you had a, a great uh, wealth of knowledge and experience uh, in how to deal with prisoners of war uh, in Gitmo in 2002 from the Army side of the house. And I'm telling you, uh, yes, we did treat them with dignity and respect. Uh we treated everybody the way we would want to be treated. Uh, however, there was abuse. I didn't witness the abuse, but I heard of the abuse. What kind of abuse? Uh, every day I would go to the detention hospital, Navy Fleet Hospital, think MASH Navy style, uh, where we treated uh, a lot of battle wounds uh, in the early detainees. So we're treating their battle wounds, uh, etc. I heard of a military uh, policeman slapping the back of the head of a detainee because they'd fallen asleep. So there was this built up animosity. I felt the hatred myself because I was away from my young family. I had a child born two days before I left for training for Gitmo. Uh. Three young sons alone with my wife. You, you darn tootin' I was pissed off. Sure, I, absolutely. Been there, done that. <laughs> But you know what? We take an oath. We take an oath to do a yes. job and we're trained to do a job and to a person with few exception. Now, if you did anything of, of the kind or uh, intimated to anyone that you wanted to hurt or do anything wrong, you were got out of there quick. You were sent home. Sometimes charges would be brought. But that's the kind of abuse that I knew about that went on. Uh, while I was there. Uh, no torture. In fact, everything was transparent. Uh, detainees were brought to and from their cells to sea huts. A sea hut is just a plywood house hut uh, where the interrogations would take place. Uh, we didn't hear any loud noises. And <laughs> we saw them when they came back and they weren't bloodied. 
But what did happen occasionally is some of the guards would get sucker punched and they would go into the, into the cells to take them either to the latrine or for their exercise or to be interrogated. And they would have to, the detainee would have to assume the position. And sometimes they would just turn around, haul off and hit a guard. Now, if that happened or they were uncooperative, we had an earth team, internal reaction force, think four or five of the biggest guys, you know, in uh, baseball catcher's gear. I can imagine. <laughs> All right. So they go in and it's a team sport. So uh, by Geneva Convention, we're allowed to hog time for up to two hours. That's the worst that we would do. Yeah. But they would put down, hey, you want to fight those five guys? You can fight them. You're going to lose. Absolutely. And there was a head or two crack. But uh, what would happen is if there was a problem in the detention camp, uh, my boss, the camp commandant, would be called down and he'd say, hey, Monty, you want to go to the camp? There's some trouble. I would go down. It would all be videotaped. So the commanding general could review the tape and the JAG officers could review the tape afterwards. Because guess what? If any of our guys did something wrong. Yeah. There would be charges. Sure. Now, right or wrong. But every single person in the game knew this going in that there was a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And if you're going to do it wrong, there are going to be consequences. So I was on hand in case there was anything that happened that I felt might need some medical attention. We would have a, a Navy corpsman uh, would be on hand. And these Navy corpsmen are, are second to none. Uh, they're awesome. Uh, and any, anything that would happen to the detainee, we would treat them on the scene. Uh, but that was really the worst of it while I was there. Uh, if a detainee got out of hand and was causing trouble, they would get put down and, and restrained. So let's let's take your example. Let's take your experience, what you're seeing. When I was a sergeant, and this is probably about um, probably the 80, 87, 86 time frame. I went to a law of war course mm -hmm. that was conducted by the Navy in San Diego. It was a week long and we studied the Geneva convention, top to bottom, all the, the things that happened, but what made it unique was this. We had three Vietnam prisoner of war, that came to the training to talk to us. One of them that I remember specifically was a Navy commander that spent seven years in mm. the Hilton Hotel in Vietnam. Hanoi Hilton. Hanoi Hilton, right. Now, first off, for this individual to even talk about his experience, as as we can probably know, very difficult for a veteran to talk about anything that they dealt with. Sure. Much less being a prisoner of war. And the reason I'm bringing this up is listening to this man and listening to what they did to him. Breaking bones starving this guy for days and days, ter interrogating them over and over and over again mm -hmm. to a point where he said, if I had the opportunity, which I didn't for years in that environment to take my life, I would have. He didn't have anything to do it. He couldn't hang himself. He couldn't stab himself. He had to endure it. So when we're talking about today, like when we went in in 2001, we had tens of thousands of these prisoners. Yep. None of those people, none of them were treated anywhere near what was done in Vietnam this and Korea for that matter. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So why are we having a, uh, a discussion today in America thinking that these prisoners in Gitmo are being treated the same way. 
And I, I go back to what you're talking about, those basically three weeks or whatever it was when they initially stood the camp up. And I know how the military works. You know, we, we got to do something so that you kind of build stuff to get it going. Sure. And then you improve it as you go along. And, and this is, you know, what you guys did. This is true. But yeah. yet the the population the populace, as you want to call it, they they want to believe that if you're a prisoner of war, that you're treated the same way that these people were in Vietnam and, and Korea and World War II. And that's not the truth. So no. how do we go from understanding that American soldiers, American military and American administration, I don't care what administration it is, we do not do those things that people are understanding from the generations of their of their combatants as as we were called being treated the same way so it's 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 very difficult for a lot of people to to wrap their fingers around the fact that and i'll say this over and over again america is god-fearing people the military are God-fearing people. Well, it's kind of changing a little bit, as you know what I mean. But the point I'm making is, is once a combatant comes uh, out of that environment, they are no longer a combatant. They're a human being. Now, they, are, they may need justice based upon, you know, what they did, per se, like World War II, and you're talking about the Holocaust and those mm -hmm. kind of things. But overall, they're human beings. Sure. But what's missing, what mm -hmm. I think is missing, I haven't read your book yet. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> what, I'm, what I think is missing is the actual justice that should have been presented to these people. That's, um, that's a tragedy. It because is. we are going to feel this for years. The, the, the world, the world, every one of them that gets released, the world sees that. That that yeah. person didn't have to go through, quote, the, the actual justice that they should have. So it's very difficult. Yeah, I think Gitmo is a small piece of the big puzzle of how we win the global war on terror, but not if we don't use it. That's correct. Um, you know, you keep saying that these are human beings. Absolutely. And that's how they were treated. You know, the United States is the best at what we do. Yes. And International Committee of the Red Cross Physicians I worked with at Gitmo told me unsolicited, nobody does detention operations better than the United States. And that was repeated when I did the same job in Iraq in 2004 and 2005. Again, I worked with the International Committee of the Red Cross who would inspect our facilities. Now, they're sworn to secrecy. They don't make public reports. Right. So there's no way other than me telling you that they told me again in Iraq, nobody does detention operations better than the United States. Absolutely. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because of our Judeo-Christian ethic. Absolutely. Treat our neighbor as thyself. Yes. And we the detainees how we would want to be treated were we held captive. So think about this when you're when you're talking about that. So this evil guy, this guy that did something over here and killed all these people or whatever. So he's coming into your environment now, right? Inside of this facility, this detaining whatever, right? Now, in our hearts, we know that these people want to kill us. And when we talk about us, military, civilians, Americans, you know, we're all kind of united to that. And they did. When, on 9-11. Absolutely they did. Right. But so then they come into this facility and you're making that contact, that initial contact with them. Well, they're no longer a combatant type person. Even though in our hearts, we want to say, I know where you came from. I know what you did. Give me a knife. I'll cut your throat. And, and any American would agree with that. I would agree with it. We do yeah, what other but but you didn't do that. And I think the reason we didn't do that is because 
you don't have a direct combatant relationship with that person. You have that's a right. job, you have a that, mission, right? That's right. And that's, di <laughs> yeah, that's difficult for a lot of, I'm going on the other direction here, sure. a lot of military people to, to grasp. I think those of us, especially I consider myself a Christian soldier, know that yes. we judge each other. God yes. judges. Absolutely. Uh, but we have common sense and we know the law and we know the Ten Commandments. Yes. And so even though we're not judging these people, we knew that some of them were evil people. And again, would kill you just as soon as look at you if they had the means to do so. But yet our training, our experience, our professionalism took over and we each of us did our jobs. And we did our jobs to the best of our ability. Uh, and the challenges to that were when the detainees, if there was if there was any institutional abuse, it was the detainees toward the guards. And so, from all uh, yep, Car carrying on with that, here's one of the major questions I wanted to ask you mm -hmm. is, you know, especially in 2001 and, you know, as we started building these facilities and sending them to Gitmo and 700, all that stuff. You heard over and over again about prisoners dying in that facility. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it. I mean, is you know, what I mean by dying, I'm talking about us doing something to these people to cause them to die. They may have, you know, a prisoner may have had a heart attack or whatever. So my question is, did any of these people that came there die? And if they did, it I'm sure it wasn't a result of us. Yeah, there were there were at least four uh, who committed suicide um, and suicide, you know, is one of the most difficult ways uh, to die to prove. Yes, it's not witnessed. There's no note. You know, the, if there's obviously you find the dead body in a way that suggests that it was suicide. So we have four suicides. You have some uh, dying of old age. Uh, you know, the body just gives out, you know, a lot of these guys live long, hard lives and the life expectancy in their own countries is maybe just into the fifties. So mm -hmm. some guys did, did perish, but not very many, but none, uh, to my knowledge, uh, because of how they were treated. In fact, we probably have extended the lives of most of them sure. because of how they were treated and the medical care that they received. Well, you know, they got, you know, their uh, nutrition, all that stuff was improved. Uh, there wasn't, you know, they're not out in the middle of the <laughs> desert. And, you know, uh -huh. so I, I, lo I love to compare this with what Christ told us, like loving your neighbor. Well, part of loving your neighbor is like, okay, I love you. It's all good to go. No, you're doing everything you can to take care of your neighbor. Doesn't matter what that person did. Right. right. You're mm -hmm. reaching out in your soul and understanding it is not your responsibility. It is our responsibility as combatants on a war zone. I'll challenge that to no end. Mm -hmm. You know, Joshua is a great example. God tells us to, to, to do battle against evil. But when these people become in our care. Yes. They're just like brothers, even though, like I said, you know, sometimes you just want to cut their head off. But yeah, it yeah. was hard. It was a hard mission, especially for MPs. Absolutely. Told you may not, uh, you know, fraternize. Yes. That would be breaking your oath and I guess against sure. the UCMJ. And so there was a difficulty in the detention hospital where the MPs who were taught not to speak to the detainees uh, had to guard the detainees, especially when they're out of shackles for things like physical therapy. And they noticed that the Navy medical personnel treated detainees like human beings. Right. In the medical field, we're told, uh, don't treat the illness, treat the human, treat the person. So these medical personnel, some of them female, were small talking with the detainees and you could see it in the faces of the MPs. They get so angry. And oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. 
oh my god these they're fraternizing no they're not fraternizing they're doing their job absolutely so we would have we would have to uh, have orientation when we got new guards in and say look this is their job this is your job you have to respect each other and work together uh to keep everybody safe uh, but that was a very hard thing for the guards because when they're alone on the detention block at 3 a.m., you know what these guys are trying to do. Yeah. They're trying to get the guards to talk to them. They're and think trying- about it. You're, you're not going to take a nurse and make her a guard, right? She doesn't so- have those She doesn't have those skills. That's what you're talking about. That's why the, the guards are the guard. There's a purpose for that military That's- guard guy, right? And I think it was easier for the Navy medical personnel to understand the role of the military policeman than for the military policeman to understand and appreciate the, the, exactly. the medical personnel. Yeah, a yeah. bunch of badass Marines. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of the MPs, and in fact, some of them did befriend the detainees. Some of them did break their oath. Some of them did fraternize. Uh, and when they uh, got out of the military, uh, they were interviewed and held up by the mainstream media. As you see here, uh, they did bad things to the detainees at Gitmo, and they feel bad about it. Um, uh, and that's disappointing. You know, yeah. uh, it was also disappointing that while we were there, CNN, uh, a gentleman named Bob Franken, who, who was a correspondent there, uh, threatened my boss and myself that if we didn't tell him classified information, he really wanted to know when we were moving the detainees from Camp X-Ray to the brand new Camp Delta in April of 2002. And we couldn't tell him. He's threatened us. He said, if you don't tell me what I need to know and let me do my job, I'll just make it up. <laughs> and you know what, bud? He did. And they I made things it. all the time. My boss and I would go to the, the Navy uh, hospital galley and have breakfast. And there on the TV, on the CNN crawl, riot last night. It's it camp uh, x-ray. I'd look at my boss and say, boss, was there a riot last night? I mean, he said, no, they would make things up because then I learned the hard way that the mainstream media is a business first. A dog bites man is not a story, but a man bites dog. That's a story, whether it's oh, true yeah. or not. Got to make money. Whether it's true gotcha. or not. Absolutely. So that's another reason I wrote the book. And it took me until 2010 to write it. But I just got fed up with all the lies and the stories told and making our people, our heroes at Gitmo look bad. So what can you tell us about your book? You know, what what are we going to be looking forward to? I'm I'm absolutely ecstatic that I'm going to be able to read this book. Um, So. The, yeah, the book is the subtitle is, um, you know, Memoir of a Citizen Warrior. So while I was there, I did keep a journal. I'm, I'm a kept a diary as a child and journal as an adult. And so I kept a journal on the computer. So it does have that feel. I go uh, chronologically, uh, but I do frame the book with some uh, glossary. Uh, I have an after action report in there. Um I go back and forth sometimes between my communication with my family, uh, which is always the most difficult part of any. Sure. Point. Absolutely. I felt like, like a, a bad husband or a bad father, uh, a husband, father should never leave his family, but you know, we take an oath, uh, to do our duty and it is absolutely the most difficult thing. I know I'm safe, but they don't know that day to day. Yep. So uh, it has some, true. It has some communication between me and my family. Uh, awesome. My wife, my wife is my personal hero, uh, raising three young boys by herself, uh, and I was gone two and a half out of the next five years for deployments, and she is a rock star uh, to me. Absolutely. Uh, and it's just raw. Uh, it's it's the way it happened. It's the way I wrote it. Uh, the most difficult part of writing a book is editing it for understanding. And I tell you, I went through a couple of editors because as a citizen warrior, a reservist, you go from civilian world to military world in a heartbeat. Yeah. Absolutely. When you're on active duty, you're wearing the uniform, you speak one language. And when you take the uniform off and go home, it's completely different. 
It is. Uh, so the editors didn't like the fact that I went from O Dark 30 or 0430 hours to uh, 5 p.m. But that's huh. how it was written. That You know, little things like that were, were sure. difficult. But um, in the very beginning, I talk about ironically how as a young man, 15, 16 years old, I studied on my own uh, military detention. My mom had a friend, Horst, I'll call him, who was a German Wehrmacht officer at the end of World War II. And he had become a Boy Scout leader and emigrated to the United States and uh, was a friend of my mother. And I got to speaking with them. And he told me stories uh, of how he should have died nine times before he was finally captured. And what fascinated me was the story he told of his capture. He said his unit was surrounded. He was in charge. They were out of food, out of uh, ammunition. And and in a clearing, he saw the first time ever an African-American sergeant came to the middle with the white flag. So he went out. He said they got the understanding that he wanted everyone to come out and put their weapons down. They did that, and they put them on trucks. And he thought for sure he was being taken out to be killed. Because he'd, he'd heard stories of uh, the SS doing that to Americans, and he felt yes. certain that happened. The Americans well, going to do the same thing, yep. When I talked to him in the late 1970s, he claimed to still have the wool coat he was given that day. Mm. And he said they were given hot meal and hot coffee and treated like human beings. And that got me to thinking, I wonder how we treated others. I wonder how we were treated by others. So I did study that from Vietnam, World War II, the Civil War. Um, it's just fast, a fascinating topic. And then to finally be part of a unit and mm. study and work and train with that unit before 9-11. Just understand, you and your listeners, we had an Army unit that was trained up, experienced, and ready to do this mission. And it was done according to the law of war. And according to the high standards that the military sets. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's a, a great day in America when citizens wake up that war is going to happen. It's going to happen all the time. I hate to say that, but it's the truth. But we have to be able to be ready for whatever that is. And I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not completely convinced that uh, we're ready to to take the next challenges. We may have all this sophisticated equipment, but war and battle is is in your heart. The it's all part of it, and I think we're struggling with that part of it. So, well, Major Montgomery, oh wow, thank you so much. I absolutely appreciate you being on the podcast. Again, go check out the book. It's Grace. What's the title? Saving, saving grace and get mode. So got to check it out. I'm going to check it out. I'm, I'm excited about reading it. And uh, can we come back later after, you know, this, you know, eighth grade level education gunny, as I call myself, um, I do have a master's in theology. So, but anyway, oh, uh, yeah. So I, I'm looking forward to reading it after I read it. I'd like to get back with you and, um, just kind of try to get your experiences uh, based on your book and, and how you, uh, I I still don't understand how you were able to deal with this because I mean, (laughs) prayer, Prayer absolutely. Because being, you know, being a Marine, I can understand the guards. Mm. I can understand that, that conceptual idea of, you know, being strong and these are prisoners do my job, lock them up bring them here, shackle them. You know, it's, it's kind of like just a a regular flow of what you do, get used to it, but you had to make a connection with these, with these prisoners. You had no choice. You can't medically help people unless you have some kind of connection to understand what they're going through and what their issues are, whether it's medical being physical or psychological. So thank you so much for what you did for the great country of America. And I hope uh, in the future that your book just goes and goes and 
that um, everybody understands how grateful you were to the prisoners, but most of all, what you have done for the holy God of the universe and taking care of these people, which is the most important part of what you did. Thank you very much. Thank you for your uh, kindness and support. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Have a wonderful evening. Great weekend. And we'll stay in touch. Oh, keep posting on Gitter. I love it. Thank you very much. Talk to you later, Major. Stand up for the flag and let's all ring the liberty. Make a Ford and a Chevy It'll still last ten years Like the should Cause the best of the free life Is still yet to come